Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Before the Declaration of Independence was even signed, building had started on Maryland's state legislature. It was there where the Continental Congress ratified the Treaty of Paris, ending the Revolutionary War. A combination of colonial brick and classical columns with just a hint of a dome that early statehouse helped to define what American democracy looks like. The classical motifs were meant to link the young country to ancient ideas of democracy and republicanism. Over time, other statehouses took that style and adapted it. It's in these statehouses that ideas, well beyond architectural symbolism, have been debated, tested, and copied. Now, a new generation of arguments is taking place, especially on the right. I'm Charlotte Howard. This is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what do state legislatures tell us about the Republican agenda? While the Capitol in Washington might face gridlock, across the country, state houses are getting to work. In more capitals, a single party has control, and their debates provide a window into their broader priorities. For states led by Republicans, dockets are dominated by bills related to abortion, identity, and kids. Is this culture war all-consuming? What will be the impact of these bills? And as the National Party dithers over its agenda, what does action on the state level say about the future of the GOP? Today, we are joined by Idris Kaloun in Washington, D.C., and Alexandra Suich-Bass, who's our correspondent in Texas. How are you both? Thank you. Good to be here. It's always fun. Thanks for letting me drop by. And Idris, you've just come back from a week in Florida. How was that? It was very warm, very delightful. When I left D.C., it was pouring rain and nearly freezing. And then Miami was heavenly weather. So that was nice. But, you know, the work was also interesting as well. <laughs> well, you each, you're just back from Florida. And Alexander, you're, of course, based in Texas. So these are two states where there's lots of work underway with very aggressive agendas from the Republican Party in each state. So looking forward to getting into it with you both. Adris, so why are we talking about states this week? Well, we know that there's not going to be very much going on in D.C. for the next two years, but one place where policymaking is very active is in states. You know, states have been pretty active and vibrant in setting out policy that is at the core of the culture wars and the core of debates of economic and other sorts of policy. And they're often the leading indicator for where the parties are going. 
Alexandra, you've been watching state houses for a while. You had a great cover last year about the divergent fortunes of American states and the divergent policies within different states. Why is now a particularly interesting time to look at what states are up to, especially on the Republican side? Well, you've had this force building over the last few decades where the number of states under one-party control continues to increase. They're called trifecta states if one party controls both chambers of the legislature and the governorship. And that leads to policies being able to sail through at state legislatures without much political dissent, or at least meaningful opposition. And states are also flush with cash, so they have a lot of decisions to make, and the policies that they choose to prioritize the session will be very meaningful. There are a lot of states now that can have a more bold legislative agenda for the reason you just described. There are 22 states, right, that have this trifecta with Republicans controlling governorship and both houses of the state legislature. And then there are 17 Democratic states that have the same power structure, but with the left leading. And for this episode, we're going to focus mainly on the Republicans. And you live in Texas, so why is Texas particularly interesting? Well, and you talk about architecture of capitals. Texas's is fascinating to see it several feet taller than the U.S. Capitol. So everything is always just bigger. Texans would like to see it as bolder in Texas. But Texas has been the leading red state for the Republican agenda. If you want to understand where the Republican Party is going, a lot of people look to the Lone Star State. And I spoke with Mark Jones, who's a professor at Rice University and a veteran Austin watcher, to ask him how unified the GOP agenda is at the moment. Well, it's been increasingly nationalized, in part because of key actors like Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott. You see other governors wanting to effectively replicate what they're doing. And what we're seeing increasingly here in Texas is Ron DeSantis does something, and then the Republican Party base, or the most conservative wing of the GOP, then pressures Greg Abbott to do it as well. How much is Texas representing the Republican agenda this legislative session? And what will the priorities in Austin be? So Texas is in a somewhat weird situation in that often we're very much behind the curve on some pieces of legislation because our legislature is only in session, regular session at least, from January to May of odd number of years. We're one of only four states that has that sort of infrequent meeting, which means that while Ron DeSantis over the past year and a half has been pushing bill after bill through the Florida legislature, Greg Abbott and Texas Republicans have had to wait till this spring to start pushing their legislation through. But I think what we're going to see is catching up with some things that Florida's done in areas like critical race theory, in areas like tenure for faculty, in areas like abortion, where they're still going to push on some agendas, and particularly on LGBTQ issues, where especially with transgender affirming therapy and the teaching of gender identity in schools, legislation that focuses there. And of course, we're going to see a renewed focus here in Texas on immigration. That's not the case in all states, simply because they don't share a long border with Mexico. Although since that issue is so important to the Republican Party base nationwide, even people like Ron DeSantis try to sort of work immigration into their overall spiel and policies. So it sounds like you think this will be a culture war session rather than a bread and butter issue session for the Texas legislature? Well, I think in the Texas legislature, that'll be the case. One, Republicans are feeling very confident after the 2022 election. Governor Greg Abbott won by over 10 points in spite of Democrat Beto O'Rourke and his allies spending over $75 million. Republicans 
saw their number of seats increase in the Texas legislature by a small amount, and they also increased their share of U.S. House seats. So Republicans are feeling really good about their control over the state of Texas. And when that occurs, they tend to focus more on what the base thinks, that is the one to three million people who vote in the Republican primary, rather than what the general electorate thinks. And when you focus on that group, that's when you tend to focus on the red meat, culture war issues, immigration, school choice. How, in your opinion, does the $33 billion surplus that Texas is enjoying affect the debates about what the priority should be or what the legislature is likely to accomplish? Well, that in some ways, having that extra money frees up the ability to focus on all these cultural issues or red meat issues for the base, because in a session where, say, the budget was tight, you'd have to spend a lot of political capital deciding who's going to have their resources cut what you're going to fund and what you're not going to fund. With a $33 billion surplus, as well as a 26% increase in the amount that can be allocated in the budget compared to the previous biennium, legislators in Austin are flush with money. There's not going to be much discussion of fiscal discipline because at the end of the day, Republicans will be providing a large level of property tax relief to Texas homeowners. And at the same time, they're going to be providing some expenditure items that will allow many constituencies to feel that they're better off, whether it's schools, health, or power, such as more natural gas power electricity plants to secure the electric grid, more funding for rural law enforcement. I think we're going to see this cycle. School safety will be there. There'll be lots of money for public schools that want to secure grade schools, middle schools, and high schools. But what you're not going to see is, I think, a lot of money for anything related or efforts related to gun control, for instance. In your opinion, looking across different red states, do you think that Texas will remain the most important Republican weather vane? Or do you think that that title now belongs to Florida if we want to understand where the Republican agenda is going? I think in the past, you could look mostly at Texas. I think now, given the prominent role that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is playing in the United States and his presidential bid, we have to increasingly look at Florida because it's DeSantis who has the most incentives to push the envelope to gain the support of Republican primary voters, because while he's running for president, Greg Abbott really is not. Since we know the first route to that victory is winning the Republican primary, we're going to see DeSantis pushing the envelope a little more than we see Abbott pushing the envelope. Idris, you were just in Florida with off-the-record interviews with the state's power brokers there. Texas and Florida are kind of vying to be the main laboratories for the Republican Party and the main states from which you might see a Republican presidential nominee. So how do you size up the level of activity in Florida versus Texas? How are they the same? How are they different? Well, Alexander will know the answer to that more than me, but I I recall a Texas Monthly article uh, from a few, I think last month, and I think the headline was, is Ron DeSantis the most powerful Republican in Texas? And I think that that gets at a lot of the dynamic where in Texas, there's been a trifecta for a long time. A lot of these Republican agenda items that they might have done have already been enacted. And so what's the new frontier? The new frontier are culture war issues over basically the spread of progressive ideas in schools about how to treat children who identify as transgender. And, you know, there is 
with the Democratic Party, I think in both states, the opposition feels so fractured that there isn't really a sizable opposition to the imposition of these ideas. It's really interesting to look at the relationship between the state's legislatures and then the governors. So in Florida, you see this fascinating coalition with legislators who see DeSantis's prospects for higher office and are hoping to line themselves up for higher level positions in Washington. And so Governor DeSantis is basically able to present his wish list to the legislature, and this happened last year as well, and get pretty much everything that he wants to accomplish to happen. In Texas, you don't have the same personal aspirations factoring into the legislative session. So you do see a power broker, especially in the lieutenant governor, who released his priorities this week. And it was a fascinating lens into the state and the GOP, where Lieutenant Governor Patrick is proposing eliminating tenure in higher ed, restoring voter fraud to be a felony, and, and things like this, kind of some familiar agenda items. But you don't see Governor Abbott in Texas playing as prominent a role over the legislative priorities as I think we do see in Florida with Ron DeSantis. Yeah, I think that if you're trying to make the jump from governor to White House, you have to operate these days on two tracks. You have to do the ordinary work of governing, of making sure that disaster relief is effective, making sure that the schools are well run, teachers are paid enough, there isn't that much crime. And then you also need to pursue some amount of national attention. And the way that you get national attention these days is by culture war stunts of of various kinds. You know, DeSantis is very capable of that. And that's why I think he's propelled himself really to the front of the Republican nomination game, at least among anyone who isn't Donald Trump. But, you know, Gavin Newsom has, as you know, Alexander, from interviewing him, has also for a while been positioning himself in a sort of more national context. And he's done that by taking strong stances on some of these culture war issues, you know, declaring as of January 1st that California is a sanctuary state for trans children and their parents who might be prosecuted in other states. So he's really leaning into that war between the states dynamic. And the really interesting thing about this is the role that the state houses are playing in waging national fights versus necessarily tending to the interests and needs of the residents of their states. And I think Gavin Newsom, Greg Abbott, And Ron DeSantis are examples of this, where they're using their positions within the state and also the legislatures to respond to what's happening in other states or what's happening in Washington. And that's a newer trend that we've been watching over the last decade that wasn't true before. That's really interesting, Alexander, because it points to a reordering of the priorities that Idris just outlined, that the basic business of governance is perhaps not as important to some of these leaders as it was in the past. These debates are happening in a context in which states have a ton of money in their coffers. So to some degree, they don't have to deal with some of the tricky questions and trade-offs that happen when they are feeling more pinched. So how does that affect this, Alexandra? Yeah, I think the fact that so many states have so much money allows them to have their cake and eat it too. So they can focus on all of these cultural issues that rile up their base and laws that won't necessarily change the lives of a lot of the people in their states. But then they can also claim to have accomplished a lot this session by giving tax cuts and teacher pay raises or pay raises to law enforcement and the like. So it's a both and session in Republican states and not necessarily an either or session. There will be times when the economy turns where ultimately cultural issues would be a huge distraction and maybe voters would punish their legislators for it. We're going to have time to discuss more of what states are doing. 
First, the usual reminder that there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash uspod. Adris and Alexandra, what was your favorite thing that you've read this week? I really enjoyed the piece looking at Haley's campaign and the launch of the Republican presidential bid and primary. I thought it was fun. I can't believe that 2024 is around the corner, but it's a it's a fun and good read. You took my answer from me. Um, so, so instead, I'll nominate your piece on the war about uh, drag queens, which is raging among the states at the moment. And I think... Uh, it's just a really fun read that illuminates so much of exactly what we're talking about. It's really amazing the subjects that can consume our country's attention. But anyway, <laughs> moving on. Economist.com slash USPod is the link to subscribe. It's in the notes for this episode. a good president for the environment. I like the great outdoors, sporting, sports, and fishing. During his presidential campaign in 1988, George H.W. Bush declared himself against new laws to control guns. And frankly, I don't think we need a lot more federal gun control either. I oppose federal gun control. And during his time in the White House, the Capitol was relatively quiet on guns. State houses, however, were another matter. A wave of laws to loosen rules on guns were sweeping through state legislatures. In the 19th century, most states had banned the practice of carrying a concealed weapon. The restrictions were intended to help the West lose its lawless image, and the South crack down on duels. As the governor of Texas, James Stephen Hogg, explained in 1893, the mission of the concealed deadly weapon is murder. To check it is the duty of every self-respecting, law-abiding man. By 1960, just two states made it easy to get a permit for a concealed weapon. But in the 1980s, the National Rifle Association began a targeted campaign to allow concealed carry. The NRA pushed states to make it easier to obtain a permit to carry a gun, changing their laws to say authorities shall issue a permit rather than just may issue one. It meant that the state had to issue permits to people as long as they met basic requirements. They didn't have to justify a need, such as fear of violence. In 1989, four states became shall issue. In the next two years, three more followed. I support the right to keep and bear arms. I also think we should have, frankly, restrictions on assault weapons whose only purpose is to kill. We need to give the police a fighting chance in our urban areas where the gangs are building up. When Bill Clinton became president in 1992, Washington had greater appetite for gun control. I think some of you have given up, maybe. The media's got you convinced a semi-automatic ban is inevitable. In 1994, at CPAC, a conservative conference, the head of the NRA, Wayne LaPierre, fought back. Well, you better believe it's not inevitable. The only thing that's inevitable is the angry revenge of voters at the polls. He was wrong. The assault weapons ban did pass later that year, though it expired a decade later. But even as lawmakers in Washington moved to tighten gun laws, those in many state houses worked to loosen them. By 1996, 30 states had shall issue laws for concealed carry. And though many Democrats thought gun control was a way to deal with crime, 
In some states, fear of crime bolstered support for gun rights. The NRA helped feed that narrative. The Kansas legislature did the right thing. They passed right to carry. You see, we have a plan to win in Kansas. In fact, we have a plan to win everywhere, and we have the inspiration to win. The head of the NRA's lobbying arm, Tanya Metaxa, took a victory lap at their convention, even though the Kansas governor had just vetoed that law. Like Kansas, Illinois is among the minority of states where the fundamental right to protect yourself outside your home is flatly denied. In those states, crime victims have a choice. Obey criminals or go to jail. And the NRA will not stand for it, not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Thank God we're winning. The expansion of concealed carry continued. In 2006, Kansas became a shall-issue state. Last year, the Supreme Court ruled that onerous or unfair may-issue rules were unconstitutional. But by then, the NRA had all but won its campaign in legislatures. 43 states had laws protecting the right to concealed carry. So, Alexandra, you spend a lot of time reporting on guns. In addition to concealed carry, how have you seen other state gun laws evolve in recent years? The shall issue trend is a really interesting window into how certain policies become mainstream. So what you were just describing about shall issue pushed by the NRA then continued to the modern day. And we saw a wave of states passing permitless carry laws. This was pushed by the National Rifle Association Proponents call it constitutional carry, but the idea is that the Second Amendment should allow you to carry a gun with you wherever you go without a permit or training, that a permit and training would infringe on your Second Amendment right. And we've seen Republican state after Republican state embrace this. It's a pretty extreme law to suggest that you shouldn't have to go through training or permitting, but that has become really the de facto law of the land in red states. And you see states that have not had it, like Florida, say, hey, we need to push this because look at what's happening in other Republican states, and they have it. There are two driving forces I'd point to for this trend. One is interest groups, like the National Rifle Association pushing this. And then the other is the fear of primary opponents. And so even in Texas, a few years ago, people thought this was too extreme and wouldn't pass in Texas. But then you had a situation where both the governor and lieutenant governor, even the House Speaker, didn't want to come out publicly against it for fear of being primaried by someone who was more supportive of this idea. And so it entered the political mainstream and ultimately passed in Texas, actually surprising many of the proponents or the people who are neutral about it. And the effect of those policies obviously can be quite broad within the states themselves. But one of the things that has been fascinating to watch, not just in this legislative session, but many prior, is the idea of model legislation where you have a particular bill that is crafted in some instances by a think tank or another interest group, and then it gets adopted in one state and more and more states after that. Adrice, can you give some background on this, when this phenomenon began and how it has had ripple effects across states? Well, it's been going on for decades. You know, years ago, there were a lot of stories about an outfit called ALEC, which is the American Legislative Exchange Council. And that was set up as a conservative-minded organization, which basically created these sorts of, of model bills. So essentially, for whatever policy, whether it was criminal justice reform or tax rates or on guns, this institution would create a 
piece of legislation, and it would basically call conferences, get state legislators over. And that was one way that you could see uh, similar policy emerge in many states all at once. To, to some extent, there's worry about whether or not this is nefarious action. Some of this is inevitable, and some of this, you know, if we adopt the sort of laboratories of democracy idea that Justice Brandeis had about America's uh, states and their competitive forms of government, some of this might be desirable, right? So it depends on your sense of whether or not this learning that is happening between states is organic. It is, you know, in some cases, an emulation of what state policymakers see as good policy, or if it's something a little bit more inorganic, where money in politics is influencing, without appropriate guardrails, the adoption of policy that isn't actually to the benefit of citizens of a state. Yeah, one thing to keep in mind as you think about the forces within state capitals is many state legislators are part-time, right? I mean, this is not their full-time gig. Often you have people who go into politics in retirement or they're doing this in addition to other work. It really varies by state. When I was covering the Midwest, one of my favorite meetings to go to was the National Conference of State Legislatures annual event where you'd have just thousands of people descend in a given conference center and they would really be almost taking seminars on different topics related to education, related to farm policy, housing. There'd be very kind of wonky sessions for these state legislators and they'd be discussing these issues and debating them. Alexandra, how much do you think that the structure of who's in state capitals and the way that it may vary from one state to the next, how does that change the ability of outside groups to come in and try to influence the agenda? What do you make of that question of organic versus inorganic? My view is that even though some of these legislators are part-time, that they have a pretty strong sense of why they wanted to get into politics and they come in with an agenda even if they haven't been legislators their whole life. Yes, I think that we see a similar phenomenon in state legislatures as we do in Congress with people wanting to have an accomplishment that they can point to and therefore they sponsor a bill that's related to something that they care about. And I think this question about organic versus inorganic spread is really interesting and something I was thinking about with the drag show piece that I was doing. So you see 15 states considering 36 bills to make it harder for people to perform in drag. Some of them contain very similar language. So I reached out to all the usual suspects asking if they had pushed model legislation and no one took credit for it. And so I have to imagine that people are looking at what's happening in other states and deciding to bring it to their own, but you don't always need an interest group to push it. The other question, of course, is when you have a state policy that then gets scaled up to the national level, and it might be either through having a state policy that's challenged in the Supreme Court, which is then affirmed or denied and becomes the law of the land, or it might be that Congress takes up something that states have helped to advance. But we'll be back in a moment to look at why many Republican bills this session seem to focus on kids. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. 
So in state legislatures this year, there are a lot of bills related to kids and culture wars. There are bills related to trans youth. There are those that have to do with critical race theory and don't say gay bills. It feels like kids are very much at the center of culture wars right now. And to get a sense of whether this is a new phenomenon, I spoke to Rick Hess, who heads the education branch of the American Enterprise Institute, a conservative think tank in Washington. I asked him what's behind the growth of these bills focused on kids. There's an old saying that things tend to happen gradually and then all at once. And at some level, this is true. Some of these debates have been playing out over 30 plus years. When I was training teachers up in Boston, Massachusetts in the 1990s, you were certainly seeing some of the disputes around critical race theory, but it didn't have a lot of sway or purchase. A couple of things have changed. One is over the last 15 or 25 years, this stuff has become more prevalent. It's been supported by major foundations. Major advocacy groups have embraced it. By this stuff, what do you mean? The ideas that travel under the umbrella of critical race theory, for instance. These ideas were there in 1990, but they weren't nearly as ubiquitous as they have become. Second is certainly after the death of Michael Brown in Kansas City, when he was killed by the police, and then during the Trump years, polarization and heated racial debate exploited across the U.S. in all manner of public life, and then certainly after the killing of George Floyd in spring 2020. And for many in education, this became a cause they rallied around, and they worked very hard to push this as something they thought needed to be addressed much more prominently in schools. And then the third thing that's gone on is certainly during the COVID pandemic, when schools were closed and parents were watching their kids get educated at the kitchen table, and suddenly they had this very clear window into what was happening in schools, lots of parents saw materials or lessons that they found problematic that they otherwise would have never paid much attention to. And this confluence has really brought these things to bear. So the issue of parental rights in education is an interesting one because education is one of the big policy areas where states have more control than the federal government does. And so it's naturally going to be an area in which there is lots of activity on the local level and parents actually can have a pretty big impact. Is there anything different about the fights parents are waging now compared with prior ones within the public school system? Yeah, I mean, especially for a listenership that's not native to the U.S., one of the interesting things is in the American system, local communities just have much more control over schools than you would find, say, on the European continent. And one of the ways this has played out historically, there's 14,000 school districts in the U.S., and you will find pretty big variation in terms of what gets covered, what's in the curriculum, what books are getting read place by place. And one of the things that has done is it has diffused some of these debates because you get very different answers in Berkeley, California, than you do in Birmingham, Alabama. Partly because of the way these debates have gotten nationalized in the Trump years and during the pandemic, when suddenly all of these things are being fought in social media, some of those shock absorbers are less effective than they were historically. So that's part of what we're seeing. And look, what's going on here is generally speaking, public schools, which are funded with taxpayers' public dollars, which serve the public's kids, which are staffed by public employees, are by definition fairly responsive to what the public wants. And so you've always had these debates about where does parental authority begin and school authority end in terms of, say, sex education or other issues of what gets addressed in school. 
But what's going on here is, especially in some of these red communities or red states, there's a sense that the general cultural view that predominates in the school district is not just a little different from that of many of the families in the community, but is oppositional. That the public is paying taxes to hire people to teach their kids things which are diametrically opposed to how they understand that the world should operate or what values are important and essential in American values. Is there a degree to which this has been over-dramatized by pundits on either side of the aisle, where what's being taught in schools is actually not such a dramatic departure as you just described, and that there's a frenzy being stirred that's out of line with reality with what's being taught? You know, I think it's all of the above. There's 14,000 school districts in the United States. What we're talking about is something that you've probably seen in maybe dozens of districts documented at most, so probably not even 1% of the school systems. I think what we're talking about is something that's probably a reality, but it's a reality that's present and significant in a limited number of schools and school systems. But because of political polarization, because of the way social media works, because advocates on both sides get headlines and generate fundraising dollars by taking these things and turning them into big headline fights, We live in an environment where these things can be real but limited, but it serves the purpose of advocates on both sides to make it look like we are in a knockdown, drag out, end of civilization clash. One thing I was struck by, Idris, in his answer was the extent to which there can be something underway which is relatively small scale, you know, in a real minority of school districts, but which nonetheless really captures national attention and to which there's a backlash either to stop the practice or to preempt it because people don't want a certain phenomenon to spread to their own school district. Do you have a sense for how popular some of these bills are within education? Yeah, I think it depends a lot on how you phrase the question, because like you said, a lot of this concern is a bit hypothetical or based on reports of what's happening in other school districts, not necessarily your own kids. So, you know, some polling about whether or not parents would be comfortable with public school teachers providing instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity to kids in elementary school, which was the subject of what's called the Don't Say Gay Bill in in Florida. It covers kids up to the age of third grade, you know, 27% of parents say that they would be comfortable with teachers talking about those issues at that age. 70% say that they would be opposed to it. If you poll parents about teaching of critical race theory in schools, it consistently polls negatively. But I think that's because the label of critical race theory has done so poorly. Concepts like teaching of racism at some point in schools are certainly quite popular as well. So it depends on what exactly people mean when they say that there is critical race theory in schools and how far gone it is. Alexandra, what's your understanding of that, the degree to which this is really something that has captured broad support within states? So I think it's important to consider why this is being talked about and discussed. And Hess spoke about the role of COVID and parents' familiarity with the content that they or other students are learning about. But this is also really about political strategy and positioning. The lesson that Republicans took from the Virginia gubernatorial race and Glenn Youngkin's successful win there was that this is an animating issue for voters under the banner of parental rights. 
So I think that's why we're seeing a lot of politicians talk about it. They have interpreted that this will really mobilize their base. And I think that then what's happening in education is also spreading more generally to children's issues. And so we see some of the anti-LGBTQ legislation fall under this. The rhetoric is all around protecting children, whether that's trans children from surgeries or it's, quote-unquote, protecting children from drag shows. Republicans have taken the lesson about control, about curriculum, and are broadening it out and have changed the rhetoric around it. I think parents generally don't see schools as the place where kids should be taught the right answers to issues that are being actively debated. I I don't see very many saying that the history of racism and the history of Jim Crow ought not to be taught. I think that the issue that we see, you know, in Florida over, for example, the African-American studies curriculum that was put out by the college board is over the sort of tail end of the curriculum about when we get to the present day and how to think about the Black Lives Matter movement how to apply queer studies to African-American history. You know, those are areas that I think people recoil at a bit. And I think, you know, we see Republicans don't have a very clear answer to a lot of basic policy questions at the moment on things like free trade, debt, deficit, taxes, health policy. But they are pretty united on this issue. And I think that's partially because they recognize that opposition to progressive ideas in schools is actually quite popular. Right. I mean, the idea of negative partisanship being a mobilizing force is certainly something we saw on the national level during the Trump years with unprecedented turnout because each side was so concerned about the other. I wonder, though, we're talking about culture wars in states. And for decades, if you were to raise that theme, the main subject of the conversation would be abortion, access to abortion, abortion rights. So we're coming up to almost a year since the Dobbs decision, not quite, which overturned the right to abortion as protected under Roe v. Wade. What are we seeing on the state level in the wake of that ruling? I think it's a really good question. I mean, in states like Texas and other Republican states, you see abortion as basically banned in Texas. There are no exceptions for rape or incest unless a mother's life is at risk. And I think the abortion debate points to a broader phenomenon, which is informing the GOP's priorities this session, which is that so much of the conservative wish list has now been accomplished already. We see it on abortion, where it's banned in Texas. We see it on guns, with permitless carry being the law of the land. And so low-hanging fruit that was always part of the conservative wish list has been checked off. And I think that's also why we're seeing education be such an area of focus in Texas and elsewhere, because so many of the other social issues and culture war issues have already been accomplished by Republicans. As a wonk who's interested in economic policy, I remain a little bit confused, interested, I don't know, but the idea that you can have a really big national party, one of the two big national parties, and have most of the agenda focused on drag shows and, more meaningfully, on debates over all kinds of cultural issues within education, but that that could be sort of the center of the party, to me, seems not like such a long-lasting strategy. Does that strike you as true, Idris? How long can the Republican Party continue to depend on culture wars as the driving force for its base? I think it can last for a while. I think that, you know, certainly the culture war issues predated Donald Trump, but his takeover of the party really forced a reformation in beliefs on fundamental issues like 
opinions on free trade, opinions on deficits, opinions on foreign policy, you know, more hawkish on China, more dovish with Russia. And the party has not really grappled with the post-Trump era because it's not post-Trump, right? And so for as long as that confusion remains within the party, the binding force for all the different coalitions, the sort of MAGA diehards, the normal businessman Republicans who are just tired of, of Trump and want to get on with it, anti-abortion activists, etc. The binding force for them that's very potent is opposition to wokeness, opposition to the encroachment of the socialist left. And for as long as that's the case, I think it'll prove to be the most potent binding agent that they have. And I think the reason that we see kids increasingly brought into this is that it just amps up the existential stakes of all of this. And it, it just heightens the sort of partisan animus and, and affect. So I think that's one reason why we're seeing the debate moved in, in the way that we have. Well, we'll see if your prediction is borne out. But first, I get to ask you both quiz questions, which is very exciting for me. So we have established that there's lots of stuff happening within state legislatures. But one thing that perhaps has been less noticed is that legislators choose state symbols that are intended to help foster a state's identity, tourism industry, etc. And last month, a state senator in New Mexico proposed a bill that would recognize America's first official state aroma. He said that smell is ubiquitous and brings joy to us whenever we even think about the smell of that aroma, end quote. What is that aroma? (laughs) I'm assuming it wasn't marijuana. I was going to guess pine. Probably something like mesquite. (laughs) It is green chilies roasting. The bill has so far made it through two committees and is headed to the state Senate. New Mexico produced more than three-fifths, more than 60% of the U.S. chili pepper crop in 2021. And if passed, the new state aroma will join the New Mexico official state question, quote-unquote, red or green, referring to chilies when ordering food. So are these, are these, are these, are these poblanos or jalapenos or serranos or what, what are they? I don't know, Adris. You're not allowed to ask me questions. Do not turn the tables on me in this way. <laughs> yeah. It's not happening. No, no shutting you down. On to question two. We all have zero points. We all have zero points. There's no way that I, as the quiz master, am going to get zero points as the questioner. I just refuse to accept that as a construct. On to question two. Even though other states might not have state aromas, each one has its own animal and flower, often dating back over a century to the 1893 World's Fair. So this is a little easier. What are the state animals of your respective home states, California for Alexandra and Kentucky for Idris? I think I know California's, but uh, maybe not Kentucky's. Where is your allegiance? What Do you know, Alexandra? It's the bear. Is it the golden bear or the black? It's the golden bear. The golden bear. Right. Or the grizzly bear. I think it's an it's it's a now um, extinct bear, interestingly, given California's penchant for conservation. Oh, okay. I think I I don't know. Kentucky could be a wildcat, given that that's the mascot at the university. The California bear is the California grizzly bear, which is indeed no longer present in California. Kentucky has a problem with decisions when it comes to state animals. Apparently, the state animals include. The Kentucky spotted bass, so a state fish, the thoroughbred, the honeybee, or an eastern gray squirrel, as well as the cardinal for the state bird. There are all kinds of different state creatures that Kentucky has claimed as its own. But no wildcats. No wildcats. Okay. Okay, and then the respective official dances of your home states are, I'll put you out of your misery, West Coast Swing and Clogging. 
Clogging. Adrice, no doubt you did lots of clogging as a youth in Kentucky. Uh, great. Great. I, I want to uh, see clogging. Like, I want to see some clogging <laughs> underway. So I'll note that that was one point for Alexandra, maybe half a point for Adrice for saying the California bear, and then just zero. Zero's all around. Zero's for you. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> Infinite points for me. Thank you, Alexandra, and thank you, Adrice. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always fun. I do have one correction for last week's episode, so negative point for me. I said that Darren LaHood was a congressman representing the suburbs and exurbs of Chicago. He's further out than that. He's from Peoria, so I'm very embarrassed as a former Chicago resident to have made that mistake. Sorry about that. This episode was produced by Stevie Hertz and mixed by James Stickland. Thanks to Marguerite Howell and Steve Maisie as well. If you like the podcast, please let people know and leave us a rating and a review. You can explore our whole archive, including our three-part series on what's behind the debate over CRT at economist.com slash checks pod. You can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. John Prito will be back next week. Treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their Golden Glow body set includes three clinically proven bestsellers for smooth, glowing skin, while the Glow & Go facial set provides spa-level results at home. Both sets come in giftable boxes with savings up to $48 and free shipping for a limited time. For 10% off your first order site-wide, go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM.